Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of ministry, word, and sacrament, and in Caridian, penned by Martin Chemnitz after he visited the churches in his area immediately after the Reformation and realized that there was a disaster amongst the clergy. Most of these trained as Roman Catholic clergy, but then had come over to the Lutheran Reformation. And so he determined to write a text that would be used as a handbook for them so that they could be examined on the content of what it is that they're supposed to be preaching, teaching, and doing. And then the handbook also functions for the laity that they would know what their pastors are supposed to be preaching, teaching, and doing. Everybody could be on the same page and there would be some accountability and there would also be a, a beautiful foundation upon which they could build. So with an eye to these historical circumstances, then we pick up this text, and today we'll begin it in, in uh, earnest as we look at the introduction on page 26. Before we get there, though, let's have our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, at the introduction on page 26, we start into the conversation on uh, the ministry of the church, and that will take us through the introduction through part one, both of which are relatively short, and then into the second part, which is the main part of the text, and that's on the word and sacraments. As you can see on page 26, this is question and answer format, just like a catechism that same structure. As we go through the text, there may be places where we jump around a little bit and don't entertain every single question and every single answer. So I kind of I commend that to you uh, to read if you want line by line. But anyway, here in the early stages, we will more or less read line by line just to get a feel for the text itself and the way that Chemnitz is doing his theology. First question, what is the nature of the ministry of the church? It is not civil government by which political affairs or the matters of the world are administered. And we hit our first set of textual references again for the sake of it, of just getting through this and it being somewhat enjoyable for those who might listen online. I'm not going to list those all the time. I commend them to you. If you're very interested in in one of those, we can always go looking it up. Uh, You just need to let me know. Chemnitz continues, nor is it spiritual power lording it arbitrarily and as it were by naked power over the church of God in matters of faith. So we have two distinctions then. We have a distinction commonly referred to as the two kingdoms, that the role of the ministry is not the role of civil government. At the, well, I should say, in the 16th century, for example, there were 
bishops who had these two different offices. And a lot of what the Lutherans were trying to do is, hey, recognize that these are distinct offices. Your role as bishop doesn't grant you civil authority. Rather, God creates the office of bishop or pastor to have spiritual authority, not civil or political authority. Right, so that's the first distinction, a distinction between what we would call the two kingdoms. But then the second is the nature of that power and authority within the office of the holy ministry. It is not a power and authority that is identical to the power and authority exercised in the civil kingdom. In the civil kingdom, uh, the person in authority says, go, and you go. No questions asked. And if you don't go, you might find yourself fined or imprisoned or on the gallows. The church and the office of the ministry is not to conduct ourselves in this way. And that's what St. Paul says. It's not for us to lord it over you. And so the way of the power is different in the right-hand kingdom, the churchly estate, than it is in the left-hand kingdom, the political estate. Okay? as we're no doubt going to have opportunity to meditate on, it is rather the power of the word. Okay. So a, the only power or the only authority within the church and within the office of the ministry is the power and authority of the word. If I just declare that we should put orange shag carpet in the sanctuary, you, know, you, might, you might listen to that. But at the end of the day, that's just like my opinion, man, you know. <laughs> so, but then on the other hand, if uh, there's, there's something going on in our church and um, I assert the truth of God's word, well then, that is authoritative. Luther's so great on this point because he says, even if a seven-year-old is speaking and wielding God's word, then that seven-year-old has the right and the power and the authority. So... It is the office of the word, and there is a power therein, but we have to distinguish that power from simply the lordly power of the left-hand kingdom. He continues, Nor is it a business, uh uh-oh, somebody tell all the CEO pastors of our day, nor is it a business or a tricky way for indulging greed. But it is a spiritual or ecclesiastic office instituted and ordained by God himself for discharging and performing necessary functions of the church so that pastors or preachers are and ought to be ministers, uh, servants of God and of the church in the kingdom of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Of course, that latter phrase being directly from the scriptures. So we have some distinctions here. Um, The office of the ministry, and by extension the church, it's not a civil affair. It's not a matter of raw power, nor should we consider it in the sphere or realm of the business world. That would be yet another mistake. How does this happen? Well, we talked about CEO pastors. That's maybe the abuse on the side of the ministry or the ministers. But in the church, it can sometimes take the abuse that the pastor is just viewed as an employee. 
So God gives us something much better than this. Uh, the pastor is not a mere hireling or employee, but nor uh, is he in the least a CEO or a visionary or someone who's going to take us to the next level or all these other marketing terms and all this other nonsense we hear all the time. Not, not your job. Not what you were called to do. Not the office that Christ designed. All right, let's pause there, see if you have any reflections on this foundation as to what the ministry is and what the ministry is not as laid out by Chemnitz. Straightforward enough? Here's a hand up up front. Uh, Just a general question, kind of on the chronology of everything. So you said that the book was written in response to a lot of the pastor's ignorance uh, at the time, and they were educated in the Catholic system. So the time, the timing and the chronological order of this, this is after Martin Luther died, correct? Mm-hmm. And so we're well into... Um, the, the, yeah, the Reformation, yeah. the second Reformation. generation. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Boy, it seems. Why are we? Why were they recruiting pastors, or p- pastors were converting from Catholicism? Still, it, it seems like uh, so the reli- we would have had our own seminaries by then. Well, the religion of the prince is the religion of the land. So you have Lutheran territories or Roman Catholic territories, and and then and by and large, I, I, I mean while that's going on, it's also popularly accepted, generally speaking, amongst the people in those, in those lands and amongst the pastors. We, at that time, there's not great seminary training, and there seems to be no upkeep, very little upkeep. And this is a, this is a pervasive problem throughout Roman Catholicism, throughout the Western Church. I mean, it's not even properly speaking Roman Catholicism at that point, so being a little anachronistic there. Throughout the Western Church, this was a big problem, period. Uh, When Luther traveled around in his territory, he saw the same kind of disaster, that pastors themselves didn't even know the small catechism. And here he's not talking about the what does this mean, or I mean, they didn't... They didn't know the basis for which he later wrote the small catechism. That is to say, they didn't know the Ten Commandments. You would go to a, a, a pastor and say, do you know the Ten Commandments? No. Can you say the Apostles' Creed? No. Do you know the Our Father? Do you pray the Our Father regularly? Some of them said yes, sometimes. <laughs> Some of them said no. No. What do you teach your people? What are your sermons like? And for a long time, the lament was that the sermons weren't even about good works. So it had fallen into such decay that it was just, hey, current events and chit-chat and reflecting on this and reflecting on that and platitudes and pontifications. The Lutherans saw it as a change for the better, although with a giant asterisk by it, when preachers started at least preaching the law to love God and love neighbor. Now, obviously, the big asterisk is we're not yet even to the gospel, but it's an improvement that you're teaching something of substance. So this kind of uh, 
and and again, you can think of the more educated pastors being drawn drawn into the larger cities, and it that it maybe not being as big of a deal there, but out in the very rural areas where you're isolated, there's no internet, there's no social media, there's just sort of the decay of one's theological knowledge, and the poor community just suffers. So that precipitates Luther writing the small catechism with those. Um, things front and center. You have to memorize and know <laughs> the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Our Father, etc. And then we have a parallel with Chemnitz in his territory, even though it's some 30 years later, 40 years later, uh, same thing. He goes on this visitation of the churches in Braunschweig in uh, 1568 and immediately comes back and pens the Enchiridion to try to uh, Reunite, And at that point in time, you have a little bit more structure and a little bit more ability to actually enforce this. So I think we covered that last week when we talked about the examinations that were going to take place on the basis of this text. Yeah. Thank you. I would say, uh, truthfully, we're not all that far away from it today. I mean, if you go to a... Just, I, I'm told these things, okay? I don't have any first-hand experience. I'm told that... It is the experience of some Lutheran laity that they are visiting someplace and they pop into the local Lutheran church and what they hear there is not substantive. What they hear there is a lot of claptrap, platitude, personal stories, feel-good stuff, not even the law, loving God and loving neighbor, let alone the gospel, other than sort of a tokenized, Christ died for you, your sins are forgiven, um, at the end of the sermon. So that, that's what I hear. That's what I hear. So I don't think we're all that far away from this um, ourselves. Does that kind of yeah, yeah, help to some degree? Okay. Okay, so the first thing is for the, for the ministers to know what the ministry is. And everyone else to be reminded as well. And thus the foundational question and answer given here by Chemnitz on page 26. Ready to go on? Question two, what then is the office of ministers of the church? Chemnitz writes, this office or ministry has been committed and entrusted to them by God himself through a legitimate call. Coupling this with something I skipped in the first part, that the office is instituted and ordained by God, it is then here stated that God is the one who commits and entrusts specific men in this office. We're going to talk about how that takes place and what their role is, but at this point it is good to know that the office of the Holy Ministry itself is instituted by God. Why is that important? Because other offices within the church aren't instituted by God. They're not necessary in the absolute sense, but the church rather is free to create them or set them aside. 
We see this in the book of Acts with the creation of the office of deacons, those who were to sit at the tables as everyone was bringing in their income and distribute that. But that is an office not created by God, but by the church and her freedom, and so she, crea- she creates that office. We also see another office emerge in the New Testament, the office of widows. And the church and her freedom can create those offices. In our context, the church creates the offices of elder and the elder board, or the office of council and the chairs who sit on the church council. These are all offices that the church and her freedom uh, has created. There are other offices too. Um, Lutheran school teacher, uh, deacon or deaconess. These are also offices created by the church for her good. Make sense? Okay, but there is one office that's essential in all times and all places, and that's the office of the holy ministry. And then it is God himself who calls men into that office of the ministry, and we're going to see again how he does that immediately. That's the key language. So just to pick back up with Chemnitz, again he writes, this office or ministry has been committed and entrusted to them by God himself through a legitimate call. And that legitimate call shows up in the book of Concord at article 14, rite vocatis. So nobody should preach the word publicly or administer the sacraments publicly without a legitimate call. Okay, and... Then we have this brief outline by Chemnitz, Roman numeral one, to feed the church of God with the true, pure, and salutary. Uh, Salutary usually meaning here like salvific, doctrine of the divine word. Okay, the key phrase there being the divine word, I think. Roman numeral two, to administer and dispense the sacraments of Christ according to his institution. Again, I think the key phrase here for us being the sacraments of Christ. Roman numeral three, to administer rightly the use of the keys of the church. So, um, an important point here that the keys of the church are indeed given to the church. Christ gives the keys to the church, thus they're the keys of the church. But those keys then are uh, used, administered, through the office of the holy ministry. So again, Roman numeral three, to administer rightly the use of the keys of the church or of the kingdom of heaven by either remitting or retaining sins. In Matthew 16, the keys are given by Christ to Peter and to the apostles. And in John 20, we have the binding and the loosing, the remitting or retaining sins. Kenneth continues, and to fulfill all these things and the whole ministry, as St. Paul says, on the basis of the prescribed command, which the chief shepherd, now 
of course, in Latin, that's pastor. So that's what's in view. The chief pastor himself has given his ministers, his servants, in his word for instruction. All right. So in this third part, the key phrase would be the keys of the church. So what are the, what are the primary roles of this office as laid out by God in his word to Feed the church with the divine word to administer and dispense the sacraments according to his institution and to rightly use the keys of the church, forgiving or retaining sins. All right, let's pause there and see if there's any. uh... I was going to ask in this third uh, point, um, the administration of the keys of the church. Uh, If the keys of the church are given, the ability to forgive sin given to the church as a whole then they're assigned to the pastor. Does that mean in in certain circumstances can a lay person offer forgiveness in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is that acceptable or is that a practice that is, uh, is uh, outdone or is it only through the office of the ministry? Yeah, I think I think that while this can get complex, it's really quite simple. Um, and that is that as Christians, we're all given to proclaim the gospel. So we can go to anyone and announce that their sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. But that's a categorically different thing. And I think that this is where it becomes really simple. What layperson would say, in the stead, in the place of, and by the command of Christ, I forgive you your sins? In what sense do you stand in his place? Has he called you to that office? No. In what, in what sense um, has he commanded you to forgive sins? In this specific case, right? Um, not. So what, what we're wrestling with is just that the pastoral office is given to do this work publicly on behalf of the church, and there's a formality that goes along with it. We don't want to err on the side of saying, therefore, no Christians can go preach the gospel or tell people their sins are forgiven. That'd be an error. But nor, on the other hand, can we say, well, any Christian should, should use that language and think of himself as having and possessing the keys to use individually as he sees fit. Now, where the, where the rug really gets pulled on this whole thing and all the, the folks that do say, hey, no, I've got the opposite of the keys. I can forgive, or forgive whoever I want anytime I want. Sure, I could even say in the stead of by the command of Christ. Yeah, and, you know, no problem. Okay, when's the last time you retained anyone's sins? Oh, oh you don't want to do that, do you? <laughs> and that really then gets to the deeper nature of the use of the keys. Because when we're talking about retaining sins, what we're very quickly talking about is excommunication. Because you are impenitent in your sin, you don't desire forgiveness. You desire blessing. You desire God to bless you while you continue this thing, and that's not going to happen. If you desire forgiveness and you want to do better, then you'll have it. But if you don't desire forgiveness, you desire approval, we don't have that for you. And where the rubber hits the road then is 
excommunication, no longer welcome to the communion table. Because why? Because that's where forgiveness is bestowed, and you're demonstrating that you don't want that forgiveness. So you can't mock God, and God's not mocked anyway. We're not going to allow you to do this to your detriment and to the scandal of the body. But these things, while there are occasions where a pastor has to um, give a minor ban from the table or a temporary ban from the table in pastoral care, ultimately these decisions have to be made by the whole body of the church, which is why... Now, we don't go through this anymore today because as soon as somebody gets upset or feels like the tables have turned against them, they just, like a good consumer, run down the road to the next church and um, do what they want there. So, but if they did stick around, ultimately, and, and this is the way that we're structured at, at, to handle this as a congregation, I think it could be structured other ways and it would be just fine, but as an LCMS congregation, an actual excommunication eventually in in some circumstances would have to go before the voters and the voters would actually say yes this is right we've done everything we can to we've followed Matthew 18 we've gone individually we've gone with two or three we've told it to the church we've gone with elders we've tried and exhausted everything we can and this person remains impenitent we have to exclude them so that they'll wake up repent and and be brought back into fellowship with us so all the, all the people that I've met, listened to, read, who are certain that, they're, that they hold the office of the keys and are ready to absolve, very fascinating that they're not ready to retain the sins. And I think that that exposes, look, you're not given and called to that public, formal office as a member of the royal priesthood we can all tell impenitent people, you need to repent. That doesn't look good. I'm not your judge, but that's impenitence, as far as I can tell. And we're also given to tell people, no, your sins are forgiven because Christ died not only for you, but for the sins of the whole world. So go out, preach the law, preach the gospel, do these things, but just realize that it's, that's flowing from the office of your royal priesthood, not from some sort of pastoral office being bestowed upon you as an individual Christian. Does that make sense? Hopefully that distinction. All right. In the book of James, I believe, it has a different type of language saying that if we confess our sins, you will be healed. Nothing about forgiveness, but you will be healed. Is that something what a layman can do then if you are in that type of atmosphere where I really send you already went to your pastor, receive the forgiveness, but then confess your sins if you desire to, just to, for the healing process. Yeah, it's a, it's a controversial and difficult text. You do have the call for elders of the church to come and lay their hands upon. So that would be the way the New Testament speaks, not of the office of elders the way we think of it, but that would be the presbyteros, the pastors. They come and lay their hands. They anoint with oil. That anointing with oil has also been ruined by Pentecostalism because it's been come to be viewed as some magical, superstitious oil, which it is not. What is actually probably going on there is when you were baptized, uh, and this is a cultural thing, but in, the, in that part of the world where you, as soon as you're done washing, you anoint yourself with oil. 
And so from the earliest days of the church, when you were baptized, you were anointed with oil immediately after. We have baptismal rites and liturgies that include this. That oil would often be perfumed with frankincense and myrrh because of uh, those in the Lord's uh, birth narrative and also in his um, embalmment as the women carry the, the spices to the tomb, frankincense and myrrh. So the Christian is brought into the life of Christ by these things. I mean, really powerful, olfactory experience of these things. Okay, so then what, do, what would it mean that the pastors go to the sick man and anoint him with oil? What would they be doing? Reminding him of his baptism. Reminding him of the incarnation of Christ that... His flesh is one with Christ's flesh, reminding him of the resurrection of his body, that Christ is risen and he too will rise. What's unclear or controversial about that is he will be made well. That language can also be he will be saved. So is this a spiritual reality or a physical reality? Or might it in some cases be both, with the primary emphasis on the spiritual Those are the questions exegetically about that. What exactly is being healed, the man's soul or the man's body, or perhaps in some cases both? Um, I lean toward the fact that they're there to do pastoral care, and they're healing him in the fullest sense, the spiritual sense. That can sometimes result in a physical healing, though not necessarily. So hopefully that helps with that section of James. Please, sir. Back to this uh, issue of the office of the keys and retaining the sins. Um, I'm curious, uh, amongst those of us gathered here, uh, what personal experiences do any of us, starting with you, of course, have with um, this? Uh, have you ever retained the sense of any of your congregation, uh, or has anybody here ever known somebody, or or this particular church, Faith Lutheran, um, has Anybody that has ever gone here, uh, had there been excommunicated? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in terms of a formal full process, not that I'm aware of, to where like a voter's assembly finally has these li- this list to excommunicate, um, at least not in any kind of like obvious scandal. What? I mean, what can, what can technically and formally happen is, and, and we just, I mean, we probably haven't practiced in this, this in this church for like, de- like decades, like three or four decades, I don't know. But if somebody just, they come to church, they're a member, and then they disappear, and they never answer your calls, the pastor tries to visit, and they won't answer, you know, and you just can't get in touch with this person, it's obvious that, okay, so at a certain point, the, the body does recognize that this person has left our communion, and formally, pro- formally, properly, that's an excommunication. It just comes without all the drama. And the way that that would sometimes have been done in the past, I don't know about here specifically, is, is as part of the pastor's report at a voters, you'd say, these are the people we've lost touch with. We've lost touch with them for a year. We've written letters. We've done everything we can. They're gone. And the voters would just say, yeah, they're gone. So that would be maybe the closest thing you get in most cases, to an excommunication. Now, what would actually be like, and a retaining of sins then by default, right? It's just, we don't understand it in those, but that is what it is. 
And then maybe more acutely, there have been, and I want to be very careful here, obviously, but there have been instances where I've told people, um, I can't commune you this Sunday until we have a conversation. Is that exactly retaining sins? We haven't had the conversation. But on the other side, it is, it is sufficient enough that I can't have you commune this Sunday. So maybe there is a retaining of sins in that sense, right? And that's for their good. Um, it's for the good of the congregation. Here's, a, here's an example that um, is used uh, just amongst pastors as a completely generic example. Um, and it drives home the point of when a pastor would do this. Okay, So this isn't, I'm not talking about any experience I've had or any experience with anyone in the congregation. I'm just, ta- just sharing with you this general story that all pastors use to illustrate this. All right. So a man, um, it becomes known to the pastor that a married man in the congregation with children, um, been going to the congregation for years, it's become known that he's having an affair. The pastor's reaching out to him to try to deal with this, to try to bring him to repentance, to see if the marriage can be restored or see if there's going to be a parting of ways. Um, And the man refuses. And this goes on for some time. And then the man shows up with his girlfriend on a Sunday morning, uh, sitting on the opposite side of the sanctuary to his, his his wife and children. The pastor doesn't notice this until he's up in the chancel when the service has started and he glances out during one of the hymns and he sees this and he goes, oh no. Now, what should the pastor do when this man brings his girlfriend up to the altar and they want to commune? Should the pastor commune him? See, that by, by your reaction, I have never, I mean, anytime I've told this generic story, I have never had a single Christian say, oh yeah, the pastor should commune him. We all recognize that this is impenitence, that it's not proper to extend forgiveness to him, the forgiveness of the supper to him, because he doesn't want it. He wants approval, acceptance. He wants Christ and his church and the pastor to bless this thing that he's doing. And that would be the wrong thing to do for him spiritually. If you want a biblical case uh, and a biblical example of this, 1 Corinthians 3 with the man who is uh, in this manifest and egregious sexual immorality, um, apparently, as best we can tell, um, maybe having relations with uh, his, uh, his father's wife, whatever that means. Okay, so not a good situation. And if you go read um, 1 Corinthians 3, it seems to be the case that the Corinthians are all puffed up and full of themselves because he, they are showing mercy to this terrible sinner by continuing to have him come to communion and continuing to have it. And Paul's like, are you crazy? I mean, that's the Rhodey version. But Paul's like, are, are you crazy? This man has to be excommunicated. And, and Paul uses the extreme language of cast, you know, cast him out of the church. Uh, that that um, he might be uh, tormented by Satan, the point being that um, he would eventually come to repentance and be restored to the church. So if you're looking for a, a biblical example of this, 1 Corinthians 3, um, the example I give is an exa- of the man who's an, a, an adulterer um, 
is one used commonly by, by all pastors to illustrate the point. And usually when it hits that concrete level, everybody's pretty much on the same page of like, yeah, no, that's not right. So that kind of thing, to answer your question, can and does happen from time to time. The pastor becomes aware of something uh, going on in the life of a parishioner and has not had opportunity to deal with it or it has not been dealt with satisfactorily, and he will say to that parishioner, we've got to get this resolved before I can commune you in good conscience. Okay, please. I was just going to say, I know know we're on the Internet, uh, so I'll be discreet. (laughs) Yeah, thank Uh, you. We did have that situation here back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, the problem was is that the, the man in the situation, he's the one that brought it into public, uh, under, pub, public scrutiny. He forced himself to be brought under public scrutiny and to be excommunicated because he wouldn't uh, – not to, just not discreet. and. Yeah. It was very painful, and um, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. another example I'll tell Chris later about. Yeah, where, I, where you have people that won't back down but insist upon it, then it, that ratchets up the need for a firm and clear use of the keys. But again, we live in such deteriorated times that... I would say like nine times out of ten, somebody who's engaging in that, the second the pastor is like, we need to have a conversation, they're like, yeah, no thanks. We're just going to transfer to another church. And the best the Lutheran pastor can do is be like, well, not another LCMS church. Yeah, well, we'll see about that because the LCMS pastor up the road might be happy to take them. That's a problem too. So we live in really deteriorated times in, in terms of churchmanship and our corporate church life. But... Uh, we can't let that deter us from attempting to do, well, from doing what's right and, uh, and urging our brothers to do what's right. Please. Yes, um, I'm wondering about the authority of the call, the synods form, and then who gives them the authority? How does that all work? And as to other um, Christian churches, how do they handle the call that uh, just from your knowledge. And the th- third thing is I approached a woman because I was concerned she had three children out of wedlock. And I explained that that wasn't good. So um, she she was fine with her life. And so um, that someone had asked if you'd ever or been involved in something like that. Yeah, and that is exactly our role as Christians to, in whatever way, shape, or form we can, call our neighbors to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ. That's a general admonition. It's something we as royal priests, baptized Christians, do in whatever ways we're given to do, whatever opportunities arise for us vocationally and otherwise. Uh, yeah, no doubt about that. Um, I'll, try to, I'll try to answer your question as succinctly as I can because your question is one on polity and we could probably spend like five or six sessions on polity. So uh, what we have given to us in the New Testament is Christ creates a church and within that church is the office of the holy ministry. And you don't have a holy ministry without a church or a church without a holy ministry. In fact, that really, really properly speaking, it's just one. It's just one. There's an office or organ within the 
church that does the public duties of the church. These things, preaching the word, administering the sacraments, using the keys. Okay? Now, how the church chooses to govern itself is a completely open question. You could have deacons running the tables, distributing the goods, carrying on what we would call the left-hand kingdom work. Money comes in, who's accounting for it? Money's going out, how is it getting distributed? Is it fair, is it right? Is someone taking advantage of it? That would be in, in the book of Acts, the deacon's job to figure all that out. What, is, what does that look like today for us? That looks like the church council. The church council is the one paying attention to the money coming in and where it's being distributed and making sure that that's all done in a good and godly way. Um, the elder board has a spiritual responsibility and works very closely with the pastor, um, obviously supporting him. Um, and if he gets out of line, correcting him. Uh, but it's in many respects, the elders are the pastor's cabinet and guides, um, but they also have kind of an extension of that office of spiritual care in the sense that, that our elders uh, very frequently are chosen because they've got, they're connected to three, four, five other families, and they're, they're no, they know a little more intimately what's going on there, and they're able to communicate that to the pastor, and the pastor can communicate through the elder. Okay, so that's kind of the way our polity works, but could it work in an entirely different way? Yep. In gospel freedom, we're allowed to do whatever we want as a congregation, as long as we have church and ministry, those things that Christ has instituted, and that's centered on word, sacrament, and the keys. So those are the essential things. Now, you can do a, you can do a top-down polity where you elect you know, hierarchs all the way up, and they just boss you around and tell you what to do. That's one form of polity, and it's actually fine. There's some advantages to it. Uh, an example of this would, of course, be uh, Roman Catholicism today. It tends to be a top-down polity. Um, you've got muckety-mucks at the top that tell you, okay, um, Pastor Rody, you're done here at Faith. Time to move you over to Arizona. It doesn't matter what the people think or what Pastor Rody thinks. That's what's happening to you. Okay? Um, you have other congregational polities where it's... Um, so an extreme example of congregationalist polity would be a lot of the megachurches you have. They tend to be run by one guy as long as he's popular. And if he has a great fall or isn't popular anymore, they just get another popular guy in there. Where's the accountability? Where's the oversight? Where's the direction? Not really anywhere. It's just at the grassroots level of the congregation. There is no hierarchy or structure or shared institutions or shared um, uh, oversight or anything like that, right? So those would be two extremes. Um, the LCMS actually grabs a hold of both of those. <laughs> um, we're very congregationalist in terms of everything is self-governed as a congregation. So bottom up, but we are voluntarily as a congregation linking into this larger structure of synod, districts, circuits, our congregation that then ties us into a more overarching uh, administration and uh, we have those checks and balances and those shared resources and that kind of thing. Okay, so the LCMS is kind of like both. So our relationship to Synod, just in terms of the, in terms of like a, well, a historical reality and an abstract conceptual reality is you've got a bunch of individual churches and they say, hey, we all believe the same thing, the Bible and the Book of Concord. We're going to join together because together we're going to be stronger. You've just formed a Synod. We're going to name the synod, and then we're going to, we're going to elect someone to be the president of our synod. 
Okay? You've just created the office of president, and you've probably just created a constitution and bylaws so that he knows how it is that he's supposed to lead and what the checks and balances are. Okay? So that's how it works. And then that, as, as it's a large group of congregations, you need a bureaucracy, you need to divide the labors, and so now you've got districts and district presidents and circuits and circuit visitors. Um, but the congregations retain their own independence. So it, the, the synod or the district or the circuit can't tell you, hey, this is who you should call as a pastor. You guys do that. In fact, they can't even tell you to stay in the LCMS. If the LCMS becomes manifestly unfaithful, the congregation can say, we're out. We're going to go join other like-minded congregations that actually want to follow the Bible in the Book of Concord. And that's actually our synod, the LCMS, was formed in that way. I don't, I, I, it, I, it's a, probably a safe generality to say that's how every exdent Lutheran synod is, uh, is today. Um, basically founded out of some sense of congregations uh, coming together and then leaving and then rejoining a different synod. And, yeah. Okay, that's the best I could do efficiently. hope it wasn't... Uh, yeah, please. Uh, just for sake of clarity, when I heard the word retain your sins, I my brain wasn't working right. And just for clarification, it means refusing to forgive sins, I think, right? So Yes, yes it does. It, it means refusing to forgive sins. The, I think the language of retaining is helpful. Your sins are retained um, is, is almost... It's almost... A, better understood as an objective statement of fact that your sins are not removed. Yeah, so you're saying, in fact, they are retained um, because you're impenitent. My brain wanted to say, uh, or I was thinking, well, you're taking on the sins and retaining those sins that he had. Oh, yeah, no. That's where, so. No, you're announcing to him that his sins remain his sins and they remain upon him. There's a hand in the back understanding that when you utilize the office of the keys as a pastor you are in the stead of christ right and everyone's forgiven as long as they're repentant how does it work for an individual because we know that who whoever has wronged us or sinned against us has ultimately been forgiven by christ if they're repentant but there are still times in an individual's life where we know we should forgive that person, but we're not using the office of the keys, but we still are struggling to forgive. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does that work? Does it ultimately bring the sin on us because we have not forgiven? Or I know it's, it's well, a different thing. Maybe. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I don't really necessarily think it's like an overarching mathematical structure where the, you know, where the sin has to go to someone. But I, I would say that the nature of the question is such that it would be best to uh, be specific about it. And um, so to go to a pa- your pastor and talk with him specifically about it, because he'll be able to help sort that out. I can only talk very broadly about the contours of that, and it would be, you know, if the person is repentant and they receive that forgiveness, that's an objective divine forgiveness that's done. It doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences of those sins are removed. So there may be temporal consequences of those sins, um, and 
that might be what you're describing. Now, if another person, like they're saying, like, I, I'm having a hard time forgiving them, a pastor can help parse that out. One of the places I always start is, do you want them to go to hell? I've actually had honest people say, well, yes, but no. <laughs> and that's, I think that's a beautiful Christian statement because it's, it's true to the emotions of what you're feeling. Yes, but no, because I know better and I wouldn't want to be going to hell for my sins. Okay, that's, that's the root. That's the root of forgiveness. And that comes right out of Matthew 18. Remember the unforgiving servant? Um, remember how he demonstrates his lack of forgiveness is by wanting the man to go to prison. And that prison is the motif of hell. So that's where I get my pastoral care on this particular question. We start it there. Do you want this person to go to hell? Um, And if you do and you say, yes, absolutely, 100%, I say, are you sure about that? You know that that would mean that Christ might want to throw you in hell. Yeah, I don't care. I'm, yep. Okay, now we've got a problem. Now, now we've got impenitent unforgiveness, rock hard. And then I've got to read the rest of Matthew 18, where Christ says very plainly, unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. And there's the final word on that. Right? Now, if you say, gosh, I really, I, I, want to, I don't want them to go to hell, but I don't want them to get away with it. Now we can work with that. That's, that, again, is a thoroughly Christian impulse. Um, because what you want is you want them to have mercy, the same way you've had mercy, but you want justice to be done. And again, as a profound generality, we commend that into God's hands, right? Or we find, you know, if there is like legal recourse or behavioral recourse or psychological recourse, setting up boundaries or something like that, right? We can talk about all of that. And all that's good, right, and salutary. It shouldn't be dismissed. Nor, um, it's appalling pastoral malpractice if they say, well, anything less than full and complete forgiveness and you're right back where you started uh, isn't forgiveness. That's complete pastoral malpractice. Those pastors ought to be ashamed who say that. Um, they've never dealt with sin or they've never thought about it. And they're re- the victims of, of sin, they're simply re-victimizing them. That's a terrible thing. And they're using the gospel to destroy justice. And that's a terrible thing. So this impulse we can work with. And then we find those right channels. We find a place where the person can be, um, you know, it's a perpetual battle because sometimes you just wake up and you don't feel all that forgiving, even though you've forgiven. And so you find things that you grasp hold of, and usually that's you confess your sins. Remember, remember like, what would have happened with that unforgiving servant? What should he have done when he found his fellow servant who owed him, frankly, a huge amount? he should have immediately recalled the even greater amount that his master had forgiven him. So that's the template. We immediately, when we're not feeling very forgiven, ought to turn to God and just start examining ourselves according to the Ten Commandments. And examining ourselves not right now, but our whole life. And once you've revisited those manifestly embarrassing, shameful, sinful parts of your life, present or past, and you've remembered that Christ has forgiven you those things, now you turn to your neighbor who's done whatever very harmful, very significant thing to you and see if you don't have a heart to begin forgiving them and to work toward that forgiveness, right? So that's, um, that's the pastoral care of Jesus in Matthew 18, and that's the pastoral care then that we as his servants are, are given to conduct. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, okay. All right.
Well, you guys have gone right to the chase. We've hit, uh, we've hit a whole bunch of the, the controversial and difficult things um, having to do with the office, and that's wonderful because we frankly don't talk a lot about the office because pastors are embarrassed too because they think, oh, it's all about me. Well, it's not about me. It's not about any particular pastor. It's about the office and the nature of the office, and the more we study and learn that, the better off we'll all be. All right, so having just a few minutes, I think we can maybe conquer uh, this third part if, if we're, or at least get a start on it. So question three on the bottom of page 26, is it right to ordain and admit to the ministry of the church those who have been called without prior appropriate and solemn examination as is generally done among papal suffragans? Okay, so... This papal suffragan, if you, if you look, the study notes aren't exactly helpful, and I wish I could um, be of better use here. So, unfortunately, to their end notes. So, you've got to flip all the way to the back. And there, the, the, papal, the papal suffragans, you just simply have reproduced the Latin the German, and then the Latin. So I don't know the historical circumstances. I can't help you with what that means. I'm sorry about that. But I would say that probably in our context, this idea of is it right to ordain and admit to the ministry of the church those who have been called without prior appropriate solemn examination? Like leave that as the question. Okay. By no means, is his answer. So, in our day and age, that kind of looks like you've got a mega church, you've got a guy who starts working with the kids, maybe leading Bible studies, he gets a cult following around him, lots of people start appreciating him, and then the church just simply says, we want you to be the pastor, we're going to make you a youth pastor, or an associate pastor, or maybe even the main pastor. Okay, would that be, properly speaking, a right call? Yes, it would be, the call would be okay. Okay, and that's, that's what's being articulated here. Is it right to ordain and admit to the ministry of the church those who have been called? Such a person has, in fact, been called, but without prior appropriate solemn examination. Has that youth pastor, in our example, had any examination? No. The only examination he's been given is, is he popular? (laughs) Which is not a theological examination. And that is not, and and here's actually how that theology works. They assume that if you're popular, that's the Holy Spirit working. Which is a huge mistake. I mean, boy, how could that go wrong? (laughs) So, um, what's inappropriate then is that the person has not been examined. Okay? And where would be the scriptural basis of that examination, where St. Paul lays out to both Timothy and Titus in the respective texts the qualifications of ministers. So an examination needs to be given. And one of those is apt to teach. So that's not only the sort of skill or, or habitus to teach, but is rather also, does he know anything? Does he know objectively the faith well enough to hand that over? So an examination has to be conducted. Is it right to call someone without such an examination? Uh, Again, you have Chemnitz's answer, by no means. 
And Chemnitz continues, For in his word God has prescribed a certain form regarding the call, doctrine, and conduct or life of those to whom the functions of the church are to be entrusted. One should therefore first carefully test and examine them as to whether they are legitimately called, whether they rightly hold the fundamentals of salutary against saving doctrine, and reject fanatic opinions. Fanatic opinions would be unbiblical opinions. Whether they are endowed with the gifts necessary to teach others sound doctrine, you know, you can know a lot, but are you able to communicate that? That's a different question and should be in view here. And whether they can prove their lives to be honorable so that they can be examples to the flock. For this concern, we have the very solemn precept of Paul, and again, First and Second Timothy cited here. The older councils therefore decreed many things regarding examination of those who are to be ordained. So don't lose the forest for the trees. The first principle of this examination comes right from the epistles of Paul. Secondarily, we have the history of the church doing these examinations. So, the order of the councils therefore decreed many things regarding examination of those who are to be ordained. These things are found in Gratian, 12th century, and sometimes Gratian is called the father of canon law. So, it's found in him, and they give the reference. And also in canon four of the fourth council of uh, Carthage. This was a series of councils in the 3rd through 5th century. So this goes all the way back. See how they're tracing it back. Paul, 3rd through 5th century, 12th century, also the foundation of canon law, um, which, by the way, Lutherans aren't against, as if, the, you know, a canon law is like, I mean, they're no more against canon laws than we would be against the constitution and bylaws of our synod. It's just what they are. It's how you, you know, they could be right or wrong. You judge them, but um, in principle, there's nothing wrong with having them. Okay, and then he continues um, giving us details about this fourth council of Carthage, at which Augustine, Augustine, of course, his dates are 354 to 430, and he's foundational for Western Christendom, at which Augustine was present, And this council decreed thus, let one who is to be ordained be ordained when he has in an examination been found to be rightly instructed. And the canon of Nicaea, again the reference is given, says, if any are promoted to be presbyters, that's the same as a pastor, without examination, church order does not recognize them because they are ordained contrary to to the rule. All right, so then um, this is where we'll leave off. I know we're a minute over, pardon me, but this is where we'll leave off with this, with this argument that from the scriptures all the way through the history of the church, it has been the case that those who are going to be ordained into the pastoral office need to be examined. And Kenneth has laid out for us what ways in which they are to be examined. And we can talk, if, if you're interested, next week, I mentioned this somewhat before, but next week we can talk about how that concretely looks in something like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, the multifaceted examination um, that we undergo in order to be uh, then part uh, or ordained into the pastoral ministry. 
All right, for the sake of those who need to take off, let's break there. I'll hang out if you have any questions or want to have further conversation. The Lord be with you.